reading through this this book uh, this afternoon again, uh, I was struck by 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 something, namely that there's no there's no party in this book. It's it's gratifyingly undoctrinaire. This is not a book about uh, the new formalists or the new anything. Really, it's a book about uh, uh, serious youngish poets who try to use all the resources of poetry to write the best poems they can. And um, I'm extremely proud to be uh, distantly associated uh, with it through uh, my friendship, friendship with David. And um, he will introduce the poets we're going to read tonight. Thank you all for coming. Thanks, Roger. Um, I'm just going to be very brief. Uh, um, there are um, three of the uh, poets from the anthology reading this evening briefly. Um, and uh, we'll begin with uh, Ben Downing. Uh, and then uh, he'll be followed by uh, Ernest Hilbert. Um, sadly, Rachel Whetstone, who was uh, scheduled to read this evening, is emailed me at 3 in the morning, is deathly ill. Uh, with a terrible uh, stomach bug, it sounds like, and so was sadly not able to be here. Um, after Ernie reads, uh, Callie Siskel, who's a fine uh, younger uh, poet uh, on the staff of the New Criterion, will read one of Rachel's uh, poems, and then um, uh, Adam Kirsch, our uh, final reader, uh, will uh, will uh, take us into the home stretch. And I just want to, before the reading begins, uh, acknowledge the presence of um, two people uh, associated. Uh, with the anthology who have, um, I think, really uh, lent it distinction. Um, and that is um, J.D. McClatchy with his eloquent, um, beautifully turned introduction to the volume. Um, and uh, the dedicatee, Herb Leibowitz, editor of Parnassus, uh, who's here as well. I'm delighted that they could be here. I'm <coughs> delighted that these uh, poets could be here tonight uh, and that you could join us. Um, Ben Downing. Um, since uh, David is the last person to ever toot his own horn, um, I thought I would toot it for him a little bit. And, and, and I'd uh, tell you a little bit about uh, what went into uh, putting this anthology together, which was uh, above and beyond the, the usual um, difficulties. Um, so I've, uh, excuse me for reading, but I've uh, prepared some remarks here. So. A rather, a rather fruity synonym for anthology that one still sometimes hears, most often in jest, is the Latin term florilegium, meaning literally a gathering of flowers. My guess is that anyone brave enough to put together an anthology these days reflects on the word with a kind of bitter irony. Whereas the early anthologists could go about insouciantly culling choice blooms for their verse bouquets without giving so much as a thought to the prospect of being sued for copyright infringement, the modern editor has to spend long, frustrating hours trying to obtain permissions for prices that won't break his minuscule budget. David certainly had to endure these standard headaches, but he was also hit by a ghastly run of bad luck. You'd never guess, admiring the sleekly handsome volume you see here, what a star-crossed venture it represents. The, anth the anthology was supposed to appear some five years ago when its original publisher suddenly went belly up. David then took it to a second house, who at first seemed enthusiastic, but ultimately backed out. At that point, he may have felt a bit like the captain of a ship 
of unwelcome refugees cruelly turned away from port after port, and he must have been sorely tempted to ditch his cargo and write off the loss. But David also happens to be, as many of you know, a sailor of no mean accomplishment, and, and perhaps it was in part his sailor's cool-headed resolution that allowed him to stay the course. At any rate, on his third try, he finally found a true and lasting home for the book. Or maybe I should say a nest, since it was under the wing of the estimable swallow press that it was ultimately taken. And so this book represents not just a labor of love, as most anthologies do, but to an uncommon degree of, per of perseverance. All of us here, contributors and readers alike, have reason to be thankful to him for that, because without it, the book never would have come to pass. But we have even more reason to be grateful for his prodigious talent, almost unseemly in a heterosexual man, as a picker and arranger of flowers. <laughs> because in the end, the book, even though it nearly killed its poor editor, really is a floor legend, a triumph of artful selection. As someone with lamentably narrow tastes in poetry, I was astounded at how many impressive and rarest of qualities truly readable new poets the anthology pointed me toward and at how it universally raised my opinion of those I was already familiar with. I'm sure that many of you have had a similar experience, and that those of you who haven't yet read, read the book, but who plan to stampede over to the table, where, oh, there it is, um, and buy multiple copies of it as soon as the reading is over, have the experience blissfully in store. So let's all give a hand to David for making it happen. Season. Stock up. <laughs> um, I'm just going to read one poem. Um, since it's a, a cocktail party, I thought I'd read one that uh, starts at a cocktail party. Um, two quick things to mention. There's one rather obscure idiom in here. Uh, to part brass rags is a um, it's a British naval idiom meaning to um, fall out with somebody that one used to be friends with. Um, I should also mention there there are a few. Um, uh, quotations of conversation in here that I'll, I'll try to indicate with my voice where I've stepped into a quotation. Uh, it's called Gimlet's. It's in three parts. One, exactly how long had it been? The last time we'd crossed paths, let's see, incalculable apparently. They blur together these occasions when, after untold months, one runs into a friend. Or is it former friends? An awkwardness born of ambiguity, a hint of stress, and a mutual caution all attend the situation. Just what are you vis-a-vis -vis each other now? Still cordial, to be sure, and solicitous, you're both mature, yet quite without your quantum chemistry. No quarrel, no breach, no parting of brass rags, emphatically to mark the change. Merely a sense of having grown estranged somehow, a slow divergence. The sense that nags at first, but then, like the friendship, dies. Leaving behind a dormant residue that is, at such chance meetings, stirred anew, its perturbations taking you by surprise. Two, drinks defensively in hand. We went through the usual catch-up routine. So are you still? What do you hear? Have you seen? and swapped a scrap or two of bland, outdated, common acquaintance scuttlebutt, 
engaged, broke up, in rehab for the third time now, <laughs> and swore the obligatory vague vow to get together, we really should. Something, though, was different this time around. Beneath the labored politesse, there clanged a note of nothing less than animosity. I heard it sound from my own strained voice as much as his, subtle yet insistent, a terse impatience with each other's worst foibles, posturings, and hobby horses. Those very flaws we'd once shrugged off, glibly tolerated, or, if not quite prized, on some dim masculine level recognized. We downed our drinks. Nervously, we coughed. Three. As the party petered out, we made the appropriate noises of farewell, confirmed our good intentions, I'll call yourself, grabbed our coats, shook hands, and parted ways. And that was it. The sheet ice of etiquette, while cracking audibly, had held, even as our cocktail cubes had melted. Hostilities were felt, but nothing was said. Things will presumably go on like this, We'll have our fitful crossings down the years, provided we keep to the same little spheres. And these will be all smiling frostiness, vague grievances crashing berg-like underneath. But what is it that irreversibly sours a happy combination such as ours? Why do, once stable mixtures start to seed, old fluidities seize up and turn to stone? Unanswerable, apparently. Oh well, how curious, tant pis, we are so very much alone. Thanks. All of my entries, uh, I'm Ernest Tilbert, uh, all of my entries in this anthology are sonnets. <clears throat> I'll begin with one that appeared in my book, 60 Sonnets, uh, which was issued earlier this year. Domestic Situation. Maybe you've heard about this, maybe not. A man came home and chucked his girlfriend's cat in the wood chipper. This really happened. Dinner wasn't ready on time. A lot of other little things went wrong. He spat on her father, who came out when he learned about it. He also broke her pinky, stole her checks, and got her sister pregnant. <laughs> but she stood by him, stood strong through it all, because she loved him. She loved him, you see? She actually said that. And then she went and married him. She felt some unique call. Don't try to understand what another person means by love. Don't even bother. Uh, one thing I like about that poem is that the Poetry Foundation has posted it and coded it under love and relationships. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like bureaucrats, right? They have to box it. And I'm um, waiting for the hapless young lover on Valentine's Day <laughs> to come across that one. Uh, here's one called Mirage. Once, when I was young, an odd thing occurred. 
I found myself in trouble for some stunt, some selfish offense, forgotten since then. For a time, my mother's smile was deferred, and I learned it was something I would want to get back so I could feel fine again. For a brief but blurred flash from the top stair, I thought she smiled at me. What a relief. I smiled back, but she scowled. What went wrong? I grew confused. I was struck standing there. What slipped in my reckless reach for reprieve? I grasped a mirage, unreal as a song. I was shocked by the sheer drop from assurance, the vast span that parts us from our parents. Uh, this one, uh, the Academy of American Poets called me because they were doing a Shark Week uh, <laughs> with the Discovery <laughs> Channel. Um, and this appeared in the Yale Review earlier this year. Uh, it's called The Shore. And I said, but the shark is, is just a, a big symbol. <laughs> they decided, the Academy decided a shark is a shark. <laughs> is a shark. <laughs> is a shark. Is a shark. And so we have a shore. <clears throat> the harpooned great white shark heaves onto sand nudged by waves, red cavern of dripping teeth. A crowd comes, loud gulls wreathe the booming mist. Blue flies cloud the fishy sunset and land. One, sated, is slapped to a smear beneath a child's quick hand and then flicked from his wrist. Compass and munitions are sunk with skulls in wrecks beneath old storms. Glass angels and hourglasses. Flint of sunlight through moats. Violence of slit sails. Drowned crews split hulls. <clears throat> Quiet draw of dust, too, and all that it pulls. The slow leak and loss of each thing that floats. Flail and wild eye, flecked spit of a crippled horse, crust of diamonds on the throat of a corpse. Um, and I'll do a light one now. Um, it's called <coughs> Fortunate Ones. Um, I sometimes eat Chinese food. And when I do, I like the, uh, the fortune at the end. But I always think. Um, <coughs> This is naive, because surely if this were to happen, something bad would happen as well. They should print that on the other side. Um, so every other line um, actually is the other side of the fortune. It's called Fortunate Ones. You will inherit large sums of money, but someone dear to you will have to die first. You will travel far and see the wide world and load yourself with debt. These things aren't free. You can relax now. You've been through the worst. But it consumed your youth, and now you're old. It's okay to laugh now. <laughs> you will enjoy many warm times with friends, but they will sneak your booze and filch your smokes. Your fortune is in some other cookie. <laughs> it's hard to argue the message that one sends. 
You are very important to your folks. They will never let your life be easy. <laughs> a fortune is only worth what it covers. Believe what you like. Discard the other. Uh, and one last one that was uh, from the New Criterion. Two of these appeared in the New Criterion. Uh, and this one is, uh, the second of them is called Pirates. Impatiently polite, imperious, our neighbors only just tolerated the peculiar clan at cul-de-sac's end. We were insufficiently industrious with lawn care, and our plot was at last rated an eyesore. How, they wondered, could we spend so much time sleeping, so little weeding? Crabgrass spiked brown, dandelions spackled gold. Of an old German barbarian born, a sour, thin kid, moping, slouching, reading. I'd gather bruised windfall apples and throw them over the hedge. Broadside, launched with scorn from our blue-shingled brigantine, square prow lodged in high grass underneath long boughs. Thank you. I'm reading Rachel Whetstone's poem, Pemberley. For those of you who don't know or forget names when pressed, like I do, um, Pemberley is the name of Darcy's estate in Pride and Prejudice. Pemberley. The park was very large. We drove for some time through a beautiful wood until the wood ceased and the house came into view. Inside were miniatures small faces we gawked at until a housekeeper showed us the master's finer portraits in an upper room. I dredged up a shaming moment. You asked me a question, then ducked as I spewed an idiot's vitriol, blindness disguised as rage. The house stood well on rising ground, and beneath its slopes, the thirsty couples held their glasses high at Cafe Can't Wait. I spent time at its flimsy tables, but then I walked under trees whose leaves exhaled gusty stories of good deeds. I learned empty houses are excellent teachers. I sent you away and felt you grow tremendous in your absence. Ask me again. I'm just finding my, my place here. Um, I'm, I'm really honored to be in this anthology and, and with the people who are here tonight and the ones who aren't, and thank you to David for including me. This is, uh, I'll read two poems that are based on uh, the poems in Boethius's Constellations of Philosophy, which I think also appeared in the New Criterion. Um, this is a short one. First the hypnosis as the hive buzzes, issuing dank and honeyed promises. Lust for the rose gold-tinted ooze makes you forget the swarm, the sting, the bruise. And this one's a little longer. Something is missing when the telescope anxiously scans a sector of the night. The numbers streaming in do not add up. The universe would be too cold or hot, too dense or empty, if it weren't for dimensions that won't let themselves be caught. Why is it that this absence reassures? 
dividing what we know by what we see, we always find that permanent remainder, the margin of an old perplexity now justified and even rational. For somewhere it is certain there must be the light remembered hypothetical that once made our dark matter visible. Thank you. Um, thanks to the readers. I also want to mention that there are a number of other uh, poets in the room who uh, appear in the anthology, Dan Brown and John Foy, and I hope I'm not uh, forgetting uh, any others. Um, please, uh, if, uh, if uh, people have, uh, have piqued your, uh, your interest, um, uh, avail yourself of a copy and, uh, and the last glass of wine, and I um, <laughs> uh, look forward to uh, speaking with you uh, further. Thanks for coming. Thank you.